Let's ask God by his spirit to illumine our hearts again for the word of God tonight. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we ask that by the ministry and power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to understand and receive uh, the good news of Jesus Christ from your word tonight. Lord, may you help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of your great uh, plan for, of redemption for your people in Christ. And may you be pleased to strengthen our faith uh, through this primary means of grace. And so bring glory to your name through these things, for we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our uh, sermon text is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which uh, I'll go ahead and read, and then also our confessional references, the Canons of Dort, I had one, Article 7, which I, I won't read again, but let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's give ear to the word of God from verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless uh, the preaching and hearing of his word this evening. Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was 1610, and uh, Jacob Arminius had died the previous year in 1609. As historians tell us the story here of the beginnings of uh, what eventually became the canons of Dort, from the Synod of Dort, and uh, after Jacob Arminius had died uh, that following year, his followers banded together not only to spread his teachings within the Reformed churches in the Netherlands and other parts of Europe, but also to formally organize and produce a, a protest, laying out their Arminian doctrinal positions and directly challenging and contradicting the biblical teachings of the Reformed churches. And as you may know and remember that this protest was called the Remonstrance. And in this Remonstrance, the Arminians taught and still teach today that God continual, con conditionally elected people on the basis of 
foreseeing their faith ahead of time, and they taught that Christ's atonement was a universal atonement, and they taught that man was only partially uh, depraved and that man can resist God's grace. And lastly, they also taught that Christians can fall away from God's grace. And so these five points of the remonstrance became known as the five points of Arminianism as we would uh, know them today. And this debate grew and spread uh, within the Reformed churches, as historians have pointed out. Uh, and the, the Synod of Dort was convened then on November 13th, 1618, uh, in the Netherlands to take up and deal with uh, this uh, doctrine, this troublesome doctrine, along with other important theological matters. Uh, and so 15 Arminians were called to appear before the Synod, uh, and, uh, but it became clear that the Arminians were not going to give any ground or deal even truthfully and openly with the Synod as historians point out and the record points out. And so they were delaying the proceedings, and they were even trying to form a counter-synod. Uh, and on January 14th, just over a month after the synod was convened, the delegates there were left with no choice but to really just eject the Arminians from the synod and continue without them. Uh, and so, and then the canons of Dort, as we have them, were officially adopted uh, a few months later, in April of 1619. And so this was the official uh, response uh, to the Armenian remonstrance in their five points. Uh, and so uh, I, I mention these things because uh, our Armenian brothers and sisters seem to have forgotten uh, that uh, they're the ones that started this uh, whole thing uh, originally. And uh, Calvinists are, are often uh, accused of divisiveness, and maybe at times there, there could be possibly some truth to that, although not across the board. Uh, but uh, it's no, noteworthy uh, to point out, and that is an intended pun, uh, that the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism began with the Arminians. And when you read the Canons of Dort, those five Reformed doctrines are written with pastoral passion uh, to uh, protect the churches from the errors the Arminians, and I encourage you to read uh, the canons, as I know that you do. And the synod declared that God unconditionally elected his people to salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that Christ's atonement was uh, designed and limited for the elect only, and that mankind was totally depraved, and that God irresistibly calls his elect to salvation and preserves them all the way to eternal life. And so those are what have historically been known to us uh, commonly as the five points of Calvinism, although that's not necessarily the most preferred name, uh, but these are nonetheless the doctrines of, of grace. And so this evening, uh, we want to take up the biblical teaching of unconditional election from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And so far from uh, teaching that God's that God elects people based on foreseeing uh, ahead of time that they believed in Christ, this text of Scripture teaches that God uh, chose and elected His people in Christ with no conditions before time began. And so He elected His people on the basis of His grace and on the basis of His love and not on anything within them. And so we won't be studying every detail uh, of this passage, but we'll simply digest the elements of election from within it 
by asking and answering five questions uh, appropriately. Uh, and we're taking a bit of a systematic approach, a systematic theology approach here in this, but the, the five questions are first, who is the author of election? Who's behind it all? Second, who are uh, the ones that receive election? So who are the recipients of election? Third, what is the definition of election? So how do we uh, officially define it? And then fourth, what are some of the characteristics of this doctrine of election as we find it in Scripture? And then fifth, what is uh, the purpose? What's it all about? Uh, what's the purpose of election? So who is the author? Who are the recipients? What is the definition? What are their characteristics? And what is the purpose of election? And loved ones, may our God be glorified and worshipped in our hearts by our mouths and through our lives as we consider this really, truly astounding and mysterious doctrine of divine election from the Word of God. And so first of all, who is the author of election? Now, I know we're all well taught in this church, but we don't want to take anything for granted here. Ultimately, we can say that our triune God is the author of our election. We see from our scripture text tonight that all three persons of the Trinity were involved. God the Father chooses us. God the Son, Jesus Christ incarnate, redeems us. Uh, and God the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. And so we can say, therefore, that the author of our election truly is our triune God. But we primarily and specifically uh, attribute the plan of divine election to God the Father in the economy of salvation, as the scriptures lead us to do so. Uh, as Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, the Father. Uh, and so we also find uh, other places in Scripture where election uh, mentions is mentioned uh, uh, principally in relation to the Father. One such place is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which where Peter writes to the pilgrims of the, of the dispersion and addresses them as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so election in Scripture, in the economy of salvation, as salvation is worked out in time and in history, uh, in Scripture, election is primarily attributed to the Father, even though the Scriptures also indicate that the Son and the Spirit are involved in the accomplishment and application of it as well. And so the primary author of election is God the Father. And so now, who does the Father choose to elect to salvation? And that's our second question this evening. Who are the recipients of the Father's election? And the answer is... Uh, the recipients of the Father's election are fallen humans who've sinned to their own fault and who aren't any better than the rest of the world, the rest of the non-elect. And I think that's worth repeating. The recipients of the Father's election are fallen humans who've sinned to their own fault and who aren't any better than anyone else. They're not any better uh, than those who are not elect. 
And so God's elect were chosen out in Christ from among the whole mass of sinful, fallen humankind. And this is reflected uh, in Ephesians 1. And, and now let's, you know, let's put our thinking caps on here and follow me here for a bit. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that the Father chose us. And in verse 5, he continues to say that God predestined us. And in verse 11, Paul says, in Christ also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Uh, so, and so the us and the we here of chapter 1 then are described, as you know, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, right? They were at one time there, it says, dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so the, the us and the we who were chosen and predestined from the foundation of the world are referring to people who were spiritually dead, fallen human beings in Adam. And so these dead, depraved, helpless sinners who couldn't choose Christ on their own, these, these are the receivers, the recipients of the Father's election. And so thinking about this truth really magnifies God's grace when you recognize these things, doesn't it? And so he picked dead, rebellious sinners to be saved in Christ, even though he would have been right and just to leave everyone in their lostness. And so God's elect receive what they don't deserve. Praise the Lord. And not only is that amazing, but really when you think it through, it's surprising, isn't it? I mean, if you think you deserved it, well... Well, I think you're, you're thinking a little too highly of yourself than you ought to. Uh, you don't. Uh, and so it should be a great surprise to us that God loves us despite all our sins in Jesus Christ and that he elected us of his free grace, which we didn't deserve and contribute anything to. Uh, and so now while we may be surprised by God's amazing grace and that he picked us unworthy sinners to be saved, there's something further to think about that actually gets even more interesting, and, and perhaps uh, maybe you haven't thought about this before, or maybe it's been a little while, and this would be a good refresher, but one of the recipients of the Father's election was Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, but pastor, you might say, Jesus wasn't fallen. Jesus wasn't spiritual, a spiritually dead sinner in, in need of salvation. He was sinless and righteous. How can you say that he was elected by the Father? Well, and if you had that thought, you're right. Uh, Jesus Christ wasn't and still isn't, praise God, uh, a sinner who needed saving. That's true. It's true. Yet Scripture says that he was chosen by the Father nonetheless. And our canons uh, echoes this, that he was chosen to be our mediator. Uh, and the one who uh, was to win our salvation. Uh, and so quoting uh, the Psalms, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 6, says that Jesus is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. And again, this is referring to Jesus, a, chose, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to, put to shame. 
Uh, and so the Bible is telling us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was chosen to be our Savior, chosen to be our mediator uh, before, uh, by God before the world began. And this took place in that uh, great covenant of redemption that took place before time began. And the reason why I'm spending some time really trying to focus on that and focus on that truth is because we can't talk about our election uh, to salvation apart from Christ's election. Uh, and so uh, we were elected by God to salvation in Christ. And our text in Ephesians 1 really pounds this nail with a hammer and over and over again, doesn't it? Uh, listen with me here. Verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so Christ is everywhere in Ephesians chapter 1. And so everything about our salvation is in Christ, in Christ in Christ. And so we were chosen in Christ who was chosen to be our mediator. He was chosen to be the Lamb of God for us, to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again in our place before time began. And so we talked about who the author of election is and who the recipients of it are, but what about an actual working definition now? of election. And that's our, our third point here this evening. What is the definition of election? I mean, we're talking about it, and so we ought to really now define it. Uh, and here we continue to dip our toes in the deep end of the pool a bit here. Uh, and so I'll take the definition from Louis Burkhoff, which is helpful and simple. And so he defined election as an eternal act of God in his sovereign good pleasure whereby he chooses a certain number of sinners, not based on foreseen merit or faith, to be recipients of God, of grace and salvation. And so let me, let me read that one more time. Uh, election is defined by Louis Burkhoff as an eternal act of God in his sovereign good pleasure, whereby he chooses a certain number of sinners, not based on foreseen merit or faith, to be recipients of grace and salvation. So we speak of election as an eternal act of God because Scripture makes it clear that He elected to save some people before time began. As verse 4 clearly says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God didn't wait for history to unfold and then choose people based on whom He could foresee uh, ahead of time would choose Christ. Uh, that wouldn't really make sense. And so when the Bible talks about election, it's talking about God choosing from eternity, choosing us from eternity. And so election was a sovereign, eternal act before we even existed. And so it's not about us choosing and loving God first and then Him loving us in response or choosing us in return. As 1 John 4 10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if we get election wrong, if we think that God chose us based on foreseeing that we would choose him, then we turn the creator-creature distinction on its head. Uh, God is the creator and the redeemer who initiates and accomplishes the salvation of his creatures. If we say he chooses us or chose us based on our choice, then we make God the responder rather than the initiator of our salvation, don't we? It just turns things upside down and backwards. Who do we think we are, right? Uh, we, we turn the creator-creature uh, creator distinction on its head. So anyone that, who believes that God chose them because they chose him first really is arrogant. They're arrogant, and they are thinking too highly of themselves, and they completely rob God of his rightful glory. And they really reduce him and his grace to nothing at that point. Why did Jesus even need to come and die? If we could just do it ourselves and choose him. And so the definition of election is the eternal act of God in his sovereign good pleasure, whereby he chooses a certain number of sinners, not based on foreseen merit or faith, to be recipients of grace and salvation. And our fourth question to ask and answer this evening is, what are the characteristics of election? And so we'll think of a few here. The first characteristic of God's election is that it's according to his purpose. And we see this uh, in our uh, sermon text tonight in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 9. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Uh, and so, um, and then verse 5 also tells us that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so it was the good, sovereign purpose and pleasure of God, uh, of God's will, uh, to choose a specific group of sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity and to give them to Christ to rescue uh, before time began. And so it was God's sovereign purpose to give His elect to His Son, uh, Jesus himself says this in John chapter 17, verse 6. I, in his high priestly prayer, praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And the second character, so that's the, the, uh, the first characteristic of God's election, that it's according to his purpose. And the second characteristic is that it is unchangeable. God's election is unchangeable, as our uh, canons teach us, Scripture teaches us. God's eternal will never changes. Uh, therefore, His election cannot be undone, it cannot be lost, it cannot be changed. And when you think this through, this really should bring a great comfort to you. It should bring great comfort to you. If you trust in Christ... For your salvation, 
then you can be assured that your election cannot be lost and it can't be taken away from you. And so there are Christians, and, and I, truth be told, I, I used to, to think this way as well, that labor under so much fear that they aren't doing enough to be saved. And many of you have had a similar uh, Christian background and upbringing uh, and, and theological upbringing as, as I have and, and in evangelical circles. And, and uh, oftentimes we uh, feel like we've, uh, uh, and we live and labor under fear that we aren't doing enough to be saved. And that understanding of the Christian life is, I do my part and God will do His part. But as I discovered, and many of you uh, have uh, discovered over and over again in, in my own life, uh, I had the disturbing mindset was that I was uh, wildly up and down, right? And perhaps you felt that same way. In your, in your past, in your Christian life. It, you, you feel wildly up and down and inconsistent in doing my part, doing your part. And, and sometimes we can live in fear that we aren't making God happy enough. Uh, or, or that uh, and we would often think that, well, maybe I'm not even a Christian anymore, right? Um, maybe I've lost my salvation. Well, in the end result... Uh, is that uh, we can uh, constantly feel the ripple effect of bad man-centered theology. And so, if I could choose God in order to be saved, I can just as easily unchoose God, right? And sometimes I thought that I had actually done that, that I had unchose God. Maybe some of you can relate, because my life was still so full of sin, right? Sometimes we subtly still fall into that, even as Reformed Christians. And so that's where Arminianism, taken to its logical conclusion, will lead us. Uh, it will lead us either to thinking that you've lost your election and your salvation, or it can lead you to be a Pharisee, thinking, oh, I'm so great. I'm full of righteousness, right? But the great blessing, loved ones, and understanding God's election biblically as being unchangeable is that it makes our salvation certain. Now, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. Election makes our salvation certain because it's not based on our uncertain obedience or our fluctuating all over the place strength of faith or lack of strength of faith. Our salvation is based on God's unchangeable choice in election. And this unchangeable choice of God is worked out in time and accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's actually accomplished. And when we hear Jesus say, I've done the work that you've given me to do and I've lost none of those whom you have given to me. And when we also hear him say on the cross, it is finished, when we hear those words, loved ones, we know that God's election is unchangeable. Christ fully accomplished 
the unchangeable will of God for our salvation. And so God's election is according to the purpose of his will. It's unchangeable. And thirdly, it's unconditional. So the good news doesn't just stop. It keeps going. Uh, election is unconditional. And this has already been implied and talked about uh, somewhat, but I want to teach us why the unconditional character of our election is so important to understand for our comfort. And so there's a terrible movement within Reformed churches uh, known as the Federal Vision and it's also in, in the New Perspective on Paul. Um, and this movement teaches that you get into God's covenant by grace, right? But you have to stay in it and you stay in it by your works. And on the day of judgment, they say, God will base your entrance into heaven on your faith and your works. And what this amounts to is that there is a condition, really, at the end of the day. In that system of thinking, there is a condition for eternal salvation that you yourself have to meet. And so this movement, it teaches you that you can really lose your salvation on the last day when God judges your works. Now, when you think about this, this... This robs Christians of any comfort of a certain salvation, doesn't it? And so this ugly teaching really slaps Christ in the face uh, and completely does away with the unconditional character of God's sovereign grace of election in Christ for our salvation. And so, loved ones, if you ever hear anybody teaching these terrible things, stop up your ears, right? Don't, don't listen to them. They're robbers and thieves, and they may even well be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so God did not choose you based on your faith. God did not choose you based on the condition of your faith. God didn't choose you based on the strength of your faith. He didn't choose you based on your obedience all your life. He did not choose you based on any of your performance whatsoever. It's all about God's grace, not your works. It's all according to the praise of His glorious grace, as the Word of God says, with which He has lavished us, or with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And so your election is based on God's purpose, it's unchangeable, and it's unconditional. Now, I know we're, we're talking about some heavy things here. We're talking about some, some deep things here, but we must learn them. We must hear them over and over again because they kind of leak out of us at times, right? Um, so that we'll rightly know and glorify God. And so we need to learn these things so that we'll find all our rest, that we find all our comfort for our salvation in Christ alone and not at all in ourselves. And so do you see what this does for our Christian lives? Can you think it through? When we find all our rest and we find all our comfort in our God who has loved us and with an everlasting love and elected us and given us to Christ unconditionally before time began, we can serve God without fear. Think it through, right? We can serve God now without fear 
of condemnation. We're no longer recipients of wrath. We're not, we're not predestined for hell. We're predestined for heaven, and that's unchangeable and unconditional, all by God's grace. And so we're no longer chained to earning God's grace. We're freed from the condemnation of the law to love God and to serve our neighbor without fear. So we no longer serve him to earn his favor because Jesus earned it for us already and that was God's eternal, unchangeable will for us in Christ from before the ages began. So we're freed up now. You're freed up now to love God and serve God simply as an expression of your thanks to him for the great salvation he has given to you in his son. So lastly, our, our fifth point, what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of election? And, and simply put, the purpose of election is God's glory. Yes, part of the, the purpose is of election is our salvation. And yes, part of the purpose of election is so that we'd receive great comfort and, and consolation in Christ. These things are, are no doubt true and very real for us. But ultimately, though, even that is subservient uh, to the ultimate purpose of election, which is for God's own glory. As Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 says, God has predestined us to the praise of His glorious grace. And verse 12 says, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14 says, to the praise of His glory. It can't really get any more clear than that, can it, from Ephesians 1. So that's not a throwaway detail, congregation. It's not a throwaway detail, especially since it's mentioned three times in one passage of Scripture. The purpose of election is the glory of God. God does everything for His glory and not for our or any other creature's glory. Uh, Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And Isaiah 48, 11 says, My glory I will not give to another. And Jesus prayed for His glory that the Father had given to Him to be seen by us in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. And then also Romans 11, verse 36, part of that great doxology in Romans. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria, loved ones. To God alone be the glory. And also one last verse on that, Revelation 5.13. It reveals to us that we'll be shouting out praise to God's glory for His sovereign works in heaven for eternity. Want to know what you're going to do in heaven? Well, you're going to shout out His praise and His glory forever. And you're going to be thrilled. Saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so make no mistake about it, loved ones. The purpose of election, even the purpose of all things, 
is for the supreme, unadulterated, unmitigated glory of God. And so as Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful plan of redemption. Thank you that in your sheer grace and the, the goodness of your will and the counsel of your will, you decided to save us from our sins. You decided uh, to make us your people in Jesus Christ. And we thank you uh, that our Savior willingly took up the mission to come and redeem us. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit, in, at our appointed time, uh, makes us alive and born again to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and applies the merits of Jesus Christ to us. And we thank you, O Lord, uh, that these things are irrevocable uh, according to your eternal, unchangeable, unconditional uh, election and will uh, for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, comfort us, encourage us, Lord, encourage your people in the knowledge and truth of these things. And, Lord, may you uh, make us bold uh, to love you and serve you without fear, knowing all that we need is found in Jesus Christ and that we will surely be brought to heaven in him uh, by your grace. And so we give you praise and the glory that you deserve and that only you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's uh, sing a, a fitting song of response in Christ alone, uh, number 265, and let's stand and sing that together, number 265.
Well, praise God, loved ones, for his goodness to us in his son. And so now hear the voice of your good shepherd, uh, sending you out with this simple good word of blessing to you, saying, grace be with you. Amen.